Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Today is a special episode, once again, with Dr. Rob Orman discussing career longevity. It's a very pertinent discussion, whether you are currently in training or have been out for some time, and really it applies to just about any specialty in emergency medicine. We talk a lot about residents and attending physicians, but this certainly applies to physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and students of both of those areas as well. I really hope you enjoy the discussion. And as always, don't forget ebmedicine.net, your one-stop shop for continuing medical education in emergency medicine, pediatric emergency medicine, and urgent care. All there at your fingertips at ebmedicine.net and in the mobile app. And now on to our discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back today with Rob Orman, MD, physician coach, gentleman extraordinaire, today talking about longevity in emergency medicine, specifically how to achieve it if you're new to emergency medicine, whether you're just graduating from residency or just starting residency and looking for ways to make sure that your career lasts. Dr. Orman is here to share with us the best ways to make your career last, we hope. And meanwhile, I'm here to provide some comic relief. <laughs> yeah. What inspired this for you? Why this topic right now? Yeah, that's a great question. We just went through the match recently, and mm. there's articles and opinions everywhere, but this is the first year there have been a unprecedented number of empty slots in emergency medicine. I thought it would be a great thing to discuss the two of us, a combined almost, I don't know, 40 plus years yeah. of emergency medicine experience. Probably closer to 50 as I'm yeah, thinking yeah, about it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. When you're talking about that, talking about the match, that is, you and I, I know, have talked to so many people about this and that everyone's got their theories and maybe there's aspects of it that are positive where there's some self-reflection or at least some honesty about it. As we were talking before the recording, there's so many things that are incredible about emergency medicine, but really it is a hard job. It's super hard. It's hard physically, emotionally, spiritually. It can just be draining. And I think that in the past, it was easy to cheerlead for it because there's just so much cool stuff, but that veneer has gone away to some degree. And med students aren't dumb. And they're not blind and they see that it's waiting room medicine things are short staffed. It's especially hard now. And I think that when you focus on a career and emergency medicine is an incredible career, I think that one of the things to understand, you know, we focus on the job, the job, the job. One of the things to focus on when we're thinking about career longevity has nothing to do with what goes on inside the hospital. We think like, it's the job. God, how do I focus on the job? How do I have the longevity there? It's the personal domain. You know, it's self-care, it's relationships, how you develop as a human being, how you manage your finances, how you recharge between shifts, all of that stuff outside the job itself. We could definitely get into the specifics of what you can do at work to have a better chance at longevity, but it's the foundation. Like if there's a pyramid of a hierarchy of needs to approach your job with, at the bottom of that pyramid is the personal domain, all of that stuff. And then it's the professional domain above that. And then it's working on the systems. All of them need to be in line and in sync. And they're definitely not always. But that first domain, that foundational domain, that personal domain is, I think, what is so easy to forget about and neglect. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something, at least when I was in residency, we were not talking about. It was very much the squeeze it all in the three years so you can learn the practice of emergency medicine and everything else you'll just have to pick up along the way. And I think to some degree, at least, that mentality stays with you for some time after residency. You forget that you're not a resident anymore, and now it's time to broaden things for your general career. But when you first get out of residency, it's transitioned to being an attending. The stress is high. The luxury of being a senior resident is gone. The luxury of having someone look over your shoulder and make sure you're doing things right is gone. And now, now it's the high stress scenario. 
and focusing on those other things is just something that, that goes by the wayside. But if you don't have somebody there to remind you, hey, this is important and needs to be done, it's going to creep up and bite you at some point. Oh, well said. As always, well said, Sam. So where, sh where should we start? Well, let's start with setting that personal foundation. So, okay. so, so you're new to emergency medicine. Let's say yeah. you just got out of residency and you're taking your first job and you're a new attending and you're going through this transition and stress seemed very manageable and, and relatively easy to handle until the day that you walked into your new emergency <laughs> department for the first time and, and had to take care of some patients. At, at what point am I going to say, okay, I'm making this giant transition, but here are some of the core things I need to get straight. When am I going to have time to do something like that in the midst of that, that first year or two as a transition? Oh, wow. That was, uh, you packed a whole suitcase for an around the world trip there, my friend. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that first job. One of the things I think to embrace when you start that new job is a transitional identity, that you are in transition. And that first year out is basically your fellowship in clinical medicine. You and I both know that learning curve of that first year is so steep. You know the stuff for the most part. Now it's time to really put it into practice. And have you ever heard of the, the liminal state? <laughs> the liminal, so it's basically, it's a state of becoming. It's a state of being a bit adrift, like a hallway between two rooms. And when you become a new attending, that is the quintessential liminal state. It's really unsettling and it's anxiety provoking. And the opposite of embracing that liminal state or embracing that transitional identity, like, okay, my identity right now is that I'm in my fellowship, I'm learning, is imposter syndrome, where we think that we immediately have to have become. And so I think one mind shift or one reframe that can be healthy is to embrace that transitional identity when you start your new job that, okay, fellowship is beginning. And give it a year. Let's say it's a year of clinical attending. You and I both know it's 20 years, but <laughs> give it a year. And this might sound obvious, but I, I don't know that it's practice as if it were obvious. That sometimes that first job is not the right job mm -hmm. for you. And there is no perfect job, but I, I think it's not uncommon to not stick the landing when you get out of training. That first year, that liminal state, that transitional identity, okay, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's your fellowship. But if, if after that, you're not having that loving feeling, ask yourself, what's going on? Mm -hmm. What's going on? Because we have this idea, almost like this projection of ourselves, like, oh, I should be doing this type of job, or I need to do this job because it pays the most money or whatever. We don't necessarily do the jobs for the right reasons. And an exercise that my coaching mentor taught me years ago was to make an ideal job description, write it all down, go into great granular detail, and then think about your current job after your fellowship, after you've stopped becoming and now you've become a little more. So you've got your ideal job and your current job. And then what percent overlap is there on the Venn diagram between the two? You know, pretty subjective. Now, if it's really low, which sometimes it is, especially when you're starting out, it's like, this is all stressful. Think, well, what can I do to increase that overlap? And that could be in the personal level, the professional level, the systems level. And it might be enough to make that job pretty good. It might not be. And if it's not, you got to look somewhere else. And you might find that your current job is, in fact, the best situation for you, right? It's the best of all possible worlds because there's not anything better. And then you double down on making it work. But you might also find that there's a much better fit out there. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to end that whole discussion with saying, yeah, immediately start looking for another job. But just realize that you don't always stick the landing. Yeah, it's interesting, the phrasing, sticking the landing. In my mind, I think of a gymnast, someone who's been practicing and practicing and practicing and then is finally out there to perform. And then sticking the landing in that scenario is so much dependent on the gymnast. I'm not sure that's the best example for emergency medicine as you just put it, right? It's not because, a perfect metaphor. 
because it's not just you, right? You're you're yeah. the resident, you're the physician. There's so many other moving parts to that first job or really any job in emergency medicine, but especially that first year, that second year that you shouldn't go into it thinking, I'm going to stick this landing because that's really putting it all on your shoulders. You might have just picked the disastrous job and you yeah. might have just walked in the doors of somebody who was just so desperate for a human being to come and work in their emergency department that they promised the world and couldn't deliver on anything. And that's not on your shoulders. And if you don't perform to the level that you were expecting, then it may not be that you were an inadequate gymnast. It may be that you were in the wrong place and that it has to do with one of those many other moving parts. So I think it's a very important thing to remember that if you go into your first job and you don't succeed in whatever your goals were, that that likely has to do just as much with the facility and the setup than it has to do with just your own performance. I love it. I love that you also push back on that metaphor. It sounded good as I was saying it in real time. But I, I guess maybe the better way to say it is a job that is concordant with what works for you. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, oh, I thought it was so clever. And I was thinking like, oh, I just get this metaphor fine out here. Okay, <laughs> point taken. And I love it. True, true. There are some places that are a soup sandwich. And mm -hmm. it's really common, and especially when you talk to young docs who are, who are struggling in a place and they're like, is it me? Is it me? And then they talk to all the docs who left. And oftentimes it is a lot of people who left. And they think, yeah, I have no way I could tolerate living there. And everybody feeling the same. So you know, I think you made such an excellent point. And you know, we're talking as if it's always a slog, mm -hmm. but it's not. And if it's only punching the clock, then it will become a slog. And I think that there's a lot of ways to approach this. I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this, but one, one thing to do early on is to keep it fun and make it a game. And you can even do this in training. You could do this in med school. You can do this in residency. You can do this as an attending. But when you make work a bit of a game, it is such a different experience than oh, another shift. Mm. And when I talk to PGY 30s and 40s, I haven't met a PGY 50 or 60 yet, but 30s and 40s, the common aspect that they all seem to share is curiosity. Mm -hmm. And to them, it's all about learning. They just have such a twink. I've, work, I've worked with some PGY 30s and 40s, a lot of 30s, some 40s, and it's all about learning. They're just so excited to learn. And when I was a chief resident, one of my attendings said to me, real sadness in his eyes. This is a guy who's probably five years out and he was amazing. Like you would, you'd go into a trauma with this guy and it's like, whoa, okay, that's how I want it. But he said, real, real sadly, that the best I'll ever be was when I was a chief resident. Hmm. And no, 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 no. That is not set in stone. And so build goals within your practice, like learning a skill reaching a certain level. And then when you get there, build new ones. And you'll find things that when you start working are a challenge for you. And everyone has different challenges. For me, it was documentation. And the thing that is the joy killer of shifts is staying four hours after every shift documenting. Let me yes. tell you, let me tell you, you do that for 10 years. <laughs> you, you basically just doubled or added another half of a, of a career onto that. Yeah. That is not concordant with longevity. So you find these things like, what are my pain points? And these pain points are painful and they just suck the joy out of work. And so you find them and think, all right, let make that a goal. Make that fun. How am I going to approach that? So that is optimized and it goes from something which is a burden to something that I have mastered. And I, so personally, I did that with documentation. Uh, halfway through my career. And the second half of my career, is like, oh, this is great. And a perfect example of this is when you're a young attending, certain patient types really get you bumped out. An elderly patient who's weak and dizzy with nonspecific complaints. Okay, great. Figure out your approach, build a framework for that. And then when you go in, it's going to be awesome when you do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. In fact, all the people 
whom I've ever met who I thought were experts in doing something in the emergency department had that expertise come out of some feeling of inadequacy about that topic. So our airway guru was someone who went, I just, I got out of residency and I just felt completely inadequate when it came to airways. So I made it my thing. The documentation guy was the person who just didn't like the way that the group was documenting and decided to make it his thing. The person who is really interested in geriatrics always said, these cases are just so challenging. I always feel like I'm missing something. So she made it her thing. This is my approach to the geriatric patient. And her order sets were always the best for the geriatric patients. And so you learn your inadequacy or what makes you feel inadequate. And that's prime fodder for becoming an expert right there. <laughs> you know, right. We look at these master clinicians and think, oh, they came out fully baked. <laughs> no, no, no it's, opposite. <laughs> it's, you know, it's always hard. The job is always hard. And it's just continual work. It's continual work on yourself. It's continual work on the job. And it's continual improvement. And one thing that I really came to appreciate further on in my career, I'm curious what you think about this. And it's easy to overlook this when you're starting out because you just have so much vim and vigor and you're just getting on it and is tension and relaxation yeah. at work. And you look around, next time you're at work, I don't care what level you are, you look around, look at the shoulders of everyone mm -hmm. you're working with. You carry so much tension around the entire time. And it's like carrying a 200 pound backpack around your whole mm -hmm. shift. And I think that's the natural state because it's so common is for us to hold tension in our bodies the whole shift and it adds up. And I think it's akin to working in a continual threat response. You know, you're just, and it's, it's subtle. And it's also different from the tension that we bring to a challenge, like a recess when it, okay, it's game on. It's a little bit of tension. You know, you need to have a little bit of that to, to stay focused. That's tension meeting a challenge, which is invigorating and allows us to perform at the highest level. So one, I hate the term hack. I'd say one approach, one tool is to create a moment in your shifts, like an anchor that will be a trigger for you to remind yourself to just release tension. And if you can do the perfect example is when I sit down at my computer, I will take a breath and relax my shoulders. And you just like put a little sticky note on the side of your computer that says, I don't know, shoulders or says breathe. And, but it's gotta be something that actually reminds you to just release a little bit of tension. And that can go a long way to saving energy throughout your shift because it's all about energy conservation and self-care and feeding and going to the bathroom and getting some fresh air. And if you don't think you can do any of those things, you're incorrect because those are self-imposed restrictions because you can, you just need to set up the structure. Relax, take a breath, recollect, and then get back into it. Wow, so much in that few minutes right there. That was chocked full of good advice, definitely. I mean, my shoulders were always hunched over every single shift. And I think it took, I don't know, five, six years before I could walk into the ED without some kind of anxious dread about what's going to come in the door and am I going to be able to manage it? And is it going to be some disaster? And it took years for that to fade away. I remember one of the most senior physicians in our group who's now retired was somebody who had been in the practice for 30 plus years and he had one gear. <laughs> it was just, this is the pace I move at. And we would have a waiting room full of people and he would just chip away at it one patient at a time. And I would always ask him, I don't know how you stay so calm. And he said, you know, the waiting room was full of people when I got here and is going to be full of people <laughs> when I leave. And, and so I just true. do my best for one person at a time and that's it. And, and I thought, gosh, that's just ridiculous. You know, the waiting room is full. We just, we got to go, man. You need like 10 more gears. We got to hurry up. But his approach was actually perfect. He, he made it 30 plus years in that career because of his ability to not let that waiting room bother him and his ability to not have some panicked anxiousness about what the next case was going to be. It was just dealing with what was in front of him.
and then moving to the next patient. It was it was quite a, a zen moment watching him in patient care. It was pretty incredible. Talk about chock full of wisdom. Oh my gosh, that is solid gold right there. Because what do we do when we come out of the patient room? So you, you go in there, if you're lucky enough to have a computer in there, you put in your orders. And the ideal situation is that if you can, between patient interactions is get down an H&P or maybe you can batch two. Have your documentation concurrent, and this is all going to arc back to the, the sage wisdom because I did the same thing to my partner who did that. I thought, you are crazy. You don't know how to you don't know anything. So all of these things, so these steps that like have a healthy pacing and spending in real time, that is a procedure that you do for you. You also do it for the patient because it's QA, it's QC, but it's also to allow you to have longevity. We're talking about career longevity. Get your documentation done so that you're not staying after four hours at the end of every shift. Mm -hmm. And it yeah. is amazing that we do not learn these good habits and training. We just don't. And also, if your partners are staying over many hours, don't say to them, oh, you're still here? Why are you still here? No, don't say that. Ask them how you can help 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 them help them get out. But back to that. So there's this really interesting phenomenon that happens that you walk out of the patient room and if there's something serious going on, if there's an ambulance coming in, if there's a trauma activation, if there's a STEMI, if there's a stroke alert, they will find you, right? Have you ever never not know. been found for one of those overhead or on the phone? It's never going to be a surprise on the tracking board. But what do we do? We get out of that room and immediately we look at our computer and whoosh, we look at that tracking board and <clears throat> the waiting room is full. There's all of these things. And then it takes our attention. It's this kind of this nervous energy has this gravitational pull. I have this sense that I need to see all those people all at once. But your partner was right. Work at the top of your game, but you can't, even in a mass casualty, you can't see patients more than one at a time. It's a different expectation and a different level that you're going to be seeing them. But know your pace and know when you need to ramp it up. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of the single speed because sometimes you actually need to like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thin slice. I'm going to go see five patients. I'm going to get things going because mm -hmm. things just exploded. So I think you do need a, a second gear <laughs> or third gear sometimes, but just temporarily, right? That's just a tool you break out from time to time. And so the idea of not really worrying about the waiting room, you know, can have your eye on it and see like, oh, is there a chest pain that's been waiting there for a while? Let's make sure that they're taken care of or like a febrile kid or whatever. But your partner's right that you can only see them one at a time and work at a speed that is safe for you. A lot of times we're pushed to be like, yeah, see patients more, see patients faster. That's something to push back against. Yeah. It's not a race, right? There's no finish line. It's just the end of your shift and the next person in the relay is coming in, but there's no finish line. It'll still be there. Everything will still be moving when you come back. Hang on. I'm so curious how this went for you. I want to change gears. I want to hear what you had to say about this. I want to talk about money. Yeah. Let's talk about money. Let's talk about money. Let's talk about money. So, and my wife will attest to this. We weren't married at the time. When I finished residency and I got a job at this sweet hospital, oh my gosh, this place, such a great place. I was making pretty good money. I wasn't a partner yet, but I was, I don't know, what do you make, like three or four times what you made as a resident? I did not do any home improvement. I drove my same car. I needed window covers. I needed window covers for my bedroom. I worked all night shifts. Mm -hmm. So I got these really dense beach towels and I got <laughs> For my windows, oh my I goodness. still get grief about that. But I mean, that's a little bit extreme. Actually, I think investing in good blackout blinds is a good move. But if you can continue, I learned this phrase from White Coast Ambassador Jim Dolly is that you, if you can continue to live like a resident for a couple years after you finish residency, that goes such a long way that all of a sudden you have this money and it's like, oh, it's going to burn a hole in my pocket. Uh, no. It's not that you have to be Dr. Frugal McFrug. It's have a plan. And if you can, don't really change your lifestyle that much when you enter that transitional identity and that liminal state. 
What do you think about that? Yeah, I would say that's the one piece of advice I still give to partners and new physicians is live beneath your means. I think the transition from resident to attending is going to expose you to a lot of different spending types and variables, and you're going to meet partners who double down on elaborate vacations, partners who have elaborate homes, choose to invest in elaborate cars, and each of them is going to have their little interest where they're just spending money like it's growing on trees. But none of them are doing all of those things at the same time. So you don't have to live in the largest home and take the most extravagant vacations and have the coolest sports car and the most expensive car on the block and have the most expensive gadgets and electronics. It's okay to have hobbies and interests, but living beneath your means will pay off in dividends down the line, not just because it's always stressful to be in debt, but it will free you from being a slave to your shifts when it comes time for scheduling. And that is where I actually saw a few of my partners burn themselves out when I would ask them, hey, you know, I noticed how many days in a row is this for you? And they would say, oh, I'm on day number 10 of 14. And I'd say, gosh, that's a lot of shifts in a row. And I remember when I was the medical director, I would say, I'm pretty sure I didn't schedule you 14 days in a row. Because if I did, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I totally goofed that up. I mean, we, we use software. We do all these things. I don't see how, I, how you got 14 days in a row. And they go, oh, no, 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 you didn't. I, picked, I did this to myself. Mm. And I would say, I don't, why, why did you do that? And they'd say, well, I got to pay bills. And I just, yeah, I could really use the extra income. And then I would follow that up with, well, is, is this a temporary thing? Because that's a great way to burn yourself out working 14 days in a row unless you're about to take some giant vacation or something. They go, oh, no, no, no. Then I'm just going to go back to my regular schedule and then work another seven in a row and then take a day off and come back for another seven. I said, gosh, that's, that's a terrible schedule. And so the number one driver for that decision making was always money. Mm. Always, 100% of the time. Mm. And my happiest partners are the ones that weren't necessarily the richest ones, but the ones who were the smartest about how often they needed to work and how much they needed to work. And it was gauged purely by money. If they wanted to work an extra shift because they were bored, well, that's the ideal place to be. But if you have to work extra shifts because you're having trouble with your finances, then do a better job managing your finances and cut back somewhere. Yeah. Know how much you spend. Yeah. Know how much you spend. Know how much you, you want to save and if you're repaying loans, don't make it a mystery. And I think a lot of times we just keep it a mystery. And we also think that we have maybe embraced domain transfer that because we have this advanced degree in medicine, we all of a sudden really are experts in finance as well. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best moves that we did when we were about a year out, I thought, oh man, I'll, I'll read a book here and get a, be, I'm going to be a financial wizard. Oh my gosh. I, first, I mean, it just, it takes attention to, to manage that thing. I mean, you know, you end up having a good income and good savings. Hopefully we got financial advisors, a financial team. We meet with them once a year, just met with them yesterday and talk to them periodically to talk about strategy. And they say, what's your risk tolerance? How much are you willing to risk and versus the gains? And you just kind of go over that and say, okay, we will get the strategy going. And it is just money so well spent. And that's not for everybody, but this is probably going to be your main source of income for your life. Yes, and, yes it is. And we it have is. advisors for so many other things. And you think, ah, oh, financial advisors, not, not worth it. We've been with them now for 24, mm. 23 or four years. And uh, you picked well. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's such, it takes such a load off. And, you know, they're not always right. I mean, the market goes up, the market goes down, but it's like, that it, there's no mystery about what the rate of return is and where things are. It's, I guess I could do that in, in Vanguard, but I, I just don't want to. But actually, I want to I get to something that you said about the scheduling, about those 14 shifts in a row. Mm. And we have known each other for this, pretty much the entire second half of our clinical careers. Mm. And you can get away with this when you're younger, 
but very shortly after you can't and embracing it early on i think is important is that you need to recharge between shifts it's just physically and mentally draining. This is emergency medicine in a busy place. Like if, I don't know, if you may work in a really sleepy place, I don't know if this is necessarily the case, but most places aren't like that. They're busy. And I don't care if it's academic. I don't care if it's community or whatever or mixture. It's the same. And it is just draining and you need time to recharge. You're like a video game character with a health bar that goes down to zero. Your neurotransmitters are depleted. You're physically just tired, probably there's some cortisol action going on in there. I don't know the science behind it, but know that you will need time to recover. And then when you're, when you are scheduling your shifts, just identify what works well for you and what you really, really don't want to do. And there's no right answer for this. The best answer on how the shifts go would be have a very prolonged period of just one shift and then another shift, like, you know, all nights for months and then something else. It usually doesn't work like that, but you need to find out what do you need to recharge and then really commit to that. There are some groups that don't have flexibility. I, it's just such a tragedy when this happens. I'm like, why, why, why do this? It's just, mm -hmm. it's nonsense. Cause you don't have to, it's just, I mean, these things are all in super programs now. And it, it, then you have a scheduler who, who puts some of the, the niceties on it and make sure that everybody's okay. But. That's actually, I think an important thing is what's the flexibility and what are my, what I'm able to do as, as far as my schedule versus everybody has to have this particular shift switch, et cetera. There's no flexibility. It's just this one way. Mm -hmm. It's a really subtle red flag, but I, I think it's pretty important. Yeah. There's so much science about circadian rhythms and shifts and moving from days to nights and back. And it's not unique to medicine. Pilots do it. Other businesses do it all the time that are open 24 hours a day. And it's not unique to emergency medicine. And if your schedule is dictated by money, then you're doing it wrong. And if you have the ability to establish with a financial advisor or somebody who's, who can help you early on, very, very early on, just stay within a, some kind of budget, live under your means, it will help you so much later on when you hire that extra person or when your group is having that talk about, you know, do we really want an extra person? Everybody here is taking up extra shifts and you go, oh, I'll, I'll give up some. I'll happily give up some. They can have two or three of mine a month easily, if not more. That's a good position to be in when you say, I, I don't need the money. I'm only doing it because the group has asked me to do it, hopefully temporarily in that that is a huge stress reliever down the line. I'm thinking about, as you're saying what it's looking like to start out your practice, I'm thinking about some things that happened to me early on in my career, and I can imagine happened to you, has had some bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. And those are so traumatic in many levels. I mean, it just really strikes to the core. I feel like so badly this happened with this patient. Sometimes it's a bad interaction. Sometimes you get sued. It's just it's so much. And there's this culture of isolation that don't talk to anybody. Don't. I, you know what? I think that's such a bunch of baloney. And I mean, there are certain like legal protections and who can be called as a If you have a bad case, if you have a bad case, there are two, I think, important things to do. Number one is do not isolate have a friend, have a community, have a mentor, having a mentor critical, can have multiple mentors. You can have a mentor who is your superior in time, somebody who is your peer, but have your failure friend that you call that's just going to listen, have your mentors, have your community that you can just vent this and get this out. Don't hold it in. And I, I, and I think that goes for everybody. Like just do the work, get it out. If you need to see a therapist or doctor coach or whatever, get it out. Talk it, process it, and then action. Take action on it. You were talking about that airway, the, the airway expert. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of bad airway outcomes early on. I thought I was God's gift to airway coming out of residency. I wasn't, it turns out. And I thought these airway courses were for dummies. And I was just like, oh, I need to take an airway course. <laughs> It was like, so when something happens, just some of the action can be to really gain some expertise in that area. Did, did we talk about the purse snatching on the last, last podcast? 
I don't think so. So there's this thought, it's not necessarily a thought experiment, but it's an example of how trauma is processed. And one way that trauma is effectively processed is through action and community. And community can be hard to do. Don't neglect it. And do self-care, exercise, sleep, feed yourself well. But action is really interesting. So you've got somebody sitting on a bench, park bench. Let's say it's a woman. She's got a purse on her lap. Somebody runs by, grabs her purse, and runs away. And the first woman doesn't do anything and just cowers in fear and just can't believe it. Happens again. The purse snatcher grabs a purse and woman like grabs it back and yanks it. It's like, my purse. Takes it back. Not necessarily that the taking back is the outcome. The first did not take any action. More likely to have disintegrated trauma so that that event is not integrated. It's just sort of like oil sitting on water. The second took action. Much more likely to have integrated that event so that it doesn't become trauma later on. That's the difference between stress and trauma. Stress, you kind of experience stress. Stress comes and then stress goes. Trauma sits with you. And so if you can integrate that event, then it basically builds you up rather than becomes trauma, something that lives in you and then will recur and come back at some time later. I didn't, I don't know if this was like the original intent of our pod, but I was just thinking about these bad cases is having a plan in place for when it happens because there's nobody it's not going to happen to. It's going to happen. Yeah. No, that's a great point. That that kind of goes hand in hand with managing your, your stress, but managing your bad outcomes is is critically important. You're absolutely right. And having some method to discuss it with people, whether that's your spouse, your director, your quality person, your risk management person, whoever it is, should be someone who has an open door that you can go and speak to whenever. I remember when I served as medical director, I got to be that person for a while. And oftentimes it was just just listening. There's no magic to it. It's just letting somebody kind of vent their frustration, their disappointment, saw a lot of tears, saw a lot of anxiety, saw a lot of need for counseling that was being given in those sessions. And it was honestly helpful for me too, because it was something that had occurred to me. But then now as a director, I could see that it happened to everyone and it happens to everyone at some point in their career. And it's something that everyone goes through. It's quite common, especially in emergency medicine. And so having that outlet is, is very, very important. You're absolutely right. You brought up the key point there. I, lo- I love that you said that, is that sometimes all I did was just listen. And I, actually, we got to this, we talked about this last time, is you don't need to solve anything. That's right. Just listen. Just listen. Just That's listen. Right. So I'm going to bring this back to that new attending physician. So they've got the new job. They're out of residency. We've talked about managing stress, working on your documentation, and not allowing it to lengthen the duration of your shift, every single shift. We've talked about the waiting room stress, the anxiety of the unknown, and how you can use that to become an expert in something. We've talked about living beneath your means, handling bad outcomes. There's a lot of things there. And if you're new in your career and you're going to try to put some of this into action, is there, you think there's a golden time frame when you'd recommend that somebody, you know, we don't usually schedule that into our planners, but maybe we should. Maybe after you get out of residency and take that first job, you need to set yourself a reminder, you know, hey Siri, remind me in one year, I need to reevaluate my practice for these 10 things. Go. (laughs) Oh. Wow, so that is a that is a great question. I mean, there's no science to how long you sh- how you should do it, but I think every six months taking an inventory of what you're doing, you can set it in your calendar, or you cannot redoing that ideal job description because it's going to change over yeah. time. And saying how's it going, what can I do? Oh, I love the idea of a check in, and there's and there's so much more that we have we haven't talked about inside interests inside the hospital and committees and what to say yes and no to. I think maybe that must be for yeah. another another. No, no, let's talk about those. So that, do that. That's a whole nother category of things, actually, I wanted to bring up today was your diversity within emergency medicine. Mm. So we talked about stress management and all this stuff, and you got to have hobbies, and you need to be a well-rounded person. This is usually a group that you don't have to convince to have hobbies. That's right. That's so true. That's that's so true. We're not going to talk about extreme sports, because I know everyone listening to this is into something completely (laughs) extreme. 
But we are going to talk about the diversity in emergency medicine. So you and I have benefited from finding niches where we could apply emergency medicine, but not necessarily clinically in front of a patient. But it, it helped support us, keep us grounded, root us in emergency medicine, and helped our careers by helping us reinforce that information by teaching, by doing things like podcasts. You speak at conferences. You're now coaching. All of these things are, they really are emergency medicine, but not at the bedside. And I want to hear your thoughts on how much that influenced your life and career. Well, I mean, the stuff you're talking about massively influenced because it's just, you know, it's always evolving. It's still evolving today. So you never know where it's going to go. But I think early on, so if we're talking about a new doc, not even, I, I don't know that I am a huge believer in the niche that you got to find your niche. I think that's pushed a lot like, oh, find your niche and create your niche. I'm not so sure about that. I think that the real move is just get involved and get involved in teaching. If you can, if you, you know what, if it resonates with you in committees, just get involved in something in the hospital that's beyond just punching the clock because it makes it such a different experience. You and I both know that the real magic place at the hospital, and these, these are becoming vanishingly few. It used to be the physician lounge where you would get to know the other docs. That's right. And right, having those relationships was so important when you are calling a consultant. I mean, you and I surely have experienced this. When you were on a committee with someone who has given you a hard time in the past, it's amazing that they don't give you a hard time anymore because now you know each other personally. Mm -hmm. You got to learn their first name. That's the golden key right there. You yes. go meet them in the lounge, you have some lunch, and you realize that Dr. Smith's first name is John, and you're going to call him John from now on. And at 3 a.m., yeah. when you wake him up, you go, hey, John, it's Sam. And they go, oh, yeah, hey, Sam, what can I do for you today, <laughs> right? Instead of, why, what are you calling me for? Because you just hear that sigh that, oh, okay, it's Sam. Okay, yeah, all right. It's, it's almost disarming to call them by their first name, but it's that familiarity that, that helps with that conflict because they, they know you, you know them, you guys are going to see each other tomorrow in the physician lounge, and now you need something from them for a patient, and that's worth his weight in gold right there. It's funny. You're so, you get so used to, to combat and fighting in training with all these other services. Then you get into a hospital where you're someplace you're going to be working for a while, and we're all just working together. And let me tell you guys, there's always going to be a little bit of access to diagnosis floating around out there that you can do nothing about. But for the mm -hmm. most part, it's collegial and it's, it's nice. It's fun. <laughs> I want to get your take on this because you have been so involved in admin and all these things. And you've been a director and you've seen people get involved. And I think that as you, after your first couple years, because in your first couple years, you, you know, you're trying to figure out what it is you're interested in, what it is you like, yeah. but you need to get really comfortable saying no. Really, because in the beginning, you're going to say yes to a lot of things. But then shortly after that, be judicious with your yeses because your plate can become overloaded very quickly, very mm -hmm. easily, especially if you're somebody who's you know, nice to work with and has some good ideas, which you guys will be listening to this. If you're listening to this, you're already interested in educating yourself. I'm going to tell you, you're going to be asked to be on a lot of committees. And we're talking about the personal domain and all these things that you can do for yourself. And one thing I think that you can use as a guide is to ask yourself as you are going through, and this is going to relate to committees and duties inside the hospital, which are so important to get involved with. But a question to check in with as far as how my career is going to ask yourself is what can I do to make sure my relationships are supported and a continuing source of joy? Mm. If, if you want to know what to say yes or no to, can use that as a guide. So if you're asked to be on a committee, great. I mean, we all do it. And they're pretty, they're pretty fun. Like, even the governance committee is cool, <laughs> you know, believe it or not. That's the geekiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's so, oh, I, I'm a geek. Come on, <laughs> come on. Uh, you know, 
yeah, relationships, social capital, makes your hospital better for you being there. And it's just like, it feels different when you are contributing to how a hospital runs rather than feeling like you're a victim. You truly have agency. I mean, it's mm-hmm. such a difference when you have agency versus you don't. But I would say, and this is where I want to get your take, these things do add up. Do not say yes right away. Be a little selfish with your time and take an unfiltered look at how this is going to impact that previous question. How's it going to impact your life, your relationships, your time with family? And you know, if it's, oh, I so want to do this, then do it. If it's just a part yes, then consider not doing that. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to do something really big. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And a friend of mine who I check in with periodically on these things says, oh, that sounds really cool. Okay. How is that going to impact the time that you have with your family? Because every mm-hmm. minute you're doing that, you are not with your family. Now, granted, you know, you want to you develop your professional self. That is also part of you. It's not that every second has to be just one thing. But I actually said no to it. I said, you know, my kids are going to college in a few years and Mm -hmm. I don't want to be spending all my time doing this other thing. I want to be available for them. Yeah. Was this a critical care friend of yours that you had this discussion with? No, no, it wasn't. It was a non-medical friend. Wow. Okay. Well, it's still great advice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If you have a nice personality and people like working with you, you're going to get asked to do a lot of things and it's okay to give up some things and say no. It's certainly okay to stop doing some things and pick up things that you think you might enjoy more. Family is a big, big one. I I had lots of time to do things when I was younger and didn't have children and didn't have a family. And then when family becomes a priority, it's definitely harder to say yes to things. It's good to keep the perspective that, you know, when you die on your deathbed, you are never, ever going to say, gosh, I wish I worked more shifts or I wish I had gone to one more committee meeting. And hopefully there are going to be those people that you raised standing around you on that last day. And so that that helps kind of keep the priorities. That's the order those things need to be in when you're evaluating what next step you're going to take, because you're going to have a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of need for good administrative physicians, sound thinking in administration, in teaching, in academics, in senior management, in EMS, in anything medical outside the hospital, you're going to be asked to do a lot of things. The good news is you're going to be good at some of those and some things you're just going to think are totally boring. And hopefully those are things you can cut out of your schedule pretty quickly. But you're absolutely right. When you're getting requests all the time, learning to say no is is definitely a critical skill. Well, Sam, as we're getting close to our wrap up here, I want to ask you what advice you would give your new attending self on how to thrive mm. in the career, knowing what you know now and also knowing some of the struggles that you had? Oof. Well, I may be a little bit of a unique case. I'll tell you, <laughs> early on in my career, within the first five years of my career, I had three bad outcomes that ended up in litigation. I was not the only one involved in that litigation. But there is nothing weighing heavier on your shoulders than that bad outcome. And the litigation is never a short thing. It is always very lengthy. And so if I could go back and see myself again, I would say I would definitely stress what we already mentioned about having someone to talk to making sure you understand that this isn't unique to you and this is just part of emergency medicine. I would also say that much of what we do in academics is focused on utilization and test necessity. And does it matter if the patient wants a scan and you don't think they need the scan? How how hard are you going to fight against it? That that kind of stuff just needs to go out the window when you're a new attending. It's it's okay to order an extra test. It's okay to wait and not make a decision to send someone home. It's okay to sit and watch somebody for a little bit long. And that the burden of the waiting room is not on your shoulders, regardless of what anyone tells you. If your director and your partners are even telling you that the whole waiting room is on your shoulders, 
that's just a lie. And you just need to take a deep breath and understand, like we said before, it's going to be there when they come to relieve you. And everything else will fall into place. But it's a tough transition period. And making it through those first few years, I think, is focused a lot on the clinical medicine and the transition of life. And those are great. But if you take away one thing from this podcast, I think the wisdom of doing that check-in, like you mentioned, whether that's at six months, a year, a year and a half, the wisdom of not forgetting to do that so that you can keep in perspective how much of it is the job and how much of it is you and what you can do about your job and what you can do about helping yourself. That's just a critical step that I didn't do early on. I definitely did not do. And I don't know that I would have left my job or done anything different in that scenario, but just stopping and pausing and saying, hey, where am I at now? It's been a year. Where am I at now? It's been two years. Because in the blink of an eye, I was five years into this thing. And those habits are really hard to change when they've been anchored into your brain for five or six years before you stop to evaluate. Oh, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Sam. That was a complete, completely impromptu question. And uh, you dug deep. Yeah, yeah. Those first five years were, were something. <laughs> mm, we'll talk about that on another, another podcast someday. Okay. On uh, how to handle litigation stress and what that's like. But today, if you're new, if you're a physician, you're a nurse practitioner, you're a PA, really this applies regardless of what your career in medicine is. We talk a lot about getting out of residency, but getting out of PA school or nurse practitioner school is, is just as stressful when you're dealing with that first job. The, I think the only unique part of it is as a physician, you don't have that oversight anymore. You just have that quality assurance committee <laughs> looking over you when something doesn't go perfectly. So yeah, the stress is real and, uh, and, and taking that, that deliberate and scheduled time to reflect is important. So tag this podcast and set yourself a reminder. Tell uh, Google or Siri or Alexa or whoever it is that you talk to to remind you in some set period of time or, or make a calendar reminder and take some time for reevaluation. And in the meantime, don't work as hard as you do. You, you don't need to do 14 shifts in two weeks. That's just terrible. Yeah. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Absolutely. Rob Orman, thank you so much for being back on the podcast. RobOrman.com, Orman Physician Coaching. You can check it out today. He also is the author of the Stimulus Podcast. If you are not a listener, you should be. Where these kinds of issues come up on a regular basis, it will make you a, a better doctor, a better PA, a better nurse practitioner. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Sam, it's always such a treat to chat with you. Thanks for having me on. Such a good discussion with Dr. Rob Orman. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a listener to our podcast. If you have a moment, I would really appreciate it if you would go to your app store and give us a rating. And as always, don't forget ebmedicine.net. It's where you will find all of the continuing education you need for your career in emergency medicine, pediatric emergency medicine, or urgent care medicine. Check out the mobile app, check out the laceration course, check out the EKG course, so much content there just waiting for you. Until next time, be safe, everyone. Mm -hmm.